Hello and welcome to episode five of Three Shaved Heads. This is our pandemic-inspired podcast, brewed specially to offer a little alternative to those sparky product conversations we used to have in the office. Do you remember those days, guys? Vaguely. So, yeah, kind of remember being in an office. <laughs> what? What's an office? Yes, exactly. Are there going to be any left in a few months' time? That's the question. We will find out. Um, okay, so this episode I want to... Welcome Elvin Turner to the show. Hey, Elvin, how are you? Thank you for inviting me on. I'm doing well, thank you. You're very you're very welcome. And how has your week been? It's been very interesting, actually. I, I, unfortunately, I've had to sign some things this week, which means I can't tell you what I, why I'm excited about what happened this oh. week. But some exciting things have happened this week. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> things that I wasn't expecting um, that could have only have happened because of lockdown. So I'm, I'm thankful for lockdown today. That's brilliant. That's re- that's really good news. There's lots of bad news, I suppose, in lots of uh, areas of uh, the industry right now. So it's great to great to hear that. Um, so um, all conversations start with a shared drinking experience. So that's where we start. So let's, guys, what are we drinking tonight? Okay. Uh, so I've got a another local beer. I'm a big fan of supporting my local breweries. Um, I actually know the brewer himself because a number of years ago, and Sam, you'll remember this, uh, I commissioned him to brew a beer for the for the band I play in. Um, so I popped down to a shop that I know stocks his, his beers. And tonight, uh, from the Love Beer Brewery in Milton, which is near Didcot, I'm drinking... Uh, what's called on the on on the bottle a super hoppy American pale ale called Bonnie Hops, and I can tell you it is super hoppy. And I know a few weeks ago I moaned about a beer that was supposed to be hoppy and wasn't, but this one is made up for that. Very very hoppy and absolutely lovely. Didn't you give me some of that beer you mentioned? Yeah, I, I rampant trumpet or something. No, not rampant trumpet. I, I can't remember what it, it, it was. was called, something outrageous. It was called Hornblower. <laughs> And it was, oh, yes. it was in exchange for some um, audio equipment that you, you, you said you no longer needed. Actually, did, didn't I give you a studio quality microphone that would be bloody handy right now? Yes, you did. You did. Yeah. And it's currently it's around the house. <laughs> well, it was good beer anyway. <laughs> and and uh, Keith, how, how local are we talking? Are we talking like a few streets away? We're talking, if I, hop, if I, if I got in my car, I'd probably get there in about uh, 15. If you if you oh, boom. I'd probably get there in about 15 minutes. I, I found out the other day the place where I service my car, there is a brewery, quite a well-known brewery, right next to it. So I'm going to buy some beers from there next time for the next episode. So, yes, we will we'll wait for that one. Um, so, Sam, what are you uh, what are you on today? Well, I'm on the hard stuff. Uh, as you know, I am not drinking at the moment. Uh, I'm a shell of a man uh, because my wife is expecting our first baby so Yay. i might need to get in the car and drive at any point so i have a cup of tea um should i go into details about the tea bag or is that just I, I think you should yeah uh it's it's by a company called brew tea company uh, it's very nice um it tastes like tea um <laughs> to the best of my knowledge i'm not aware of an app to which you can rate tea um, no. Yeah, I'm afraid this will be me for the next few episodes. I think. So, so if you suddenly go quiet, it's not because you've fallen asleep again. It's probably because you're in the car on the way to a hospital. No, I mean it could be either. Um, <laughs> it could be, it could be either. Uh, but yes, um, milk, sugar, milk, no sugar. Okay. okay. I like the raw taste of tea. <laughs> and I've talked too long about this now, so we should probably ask. Uh, we should we should ask our guest. It's definitely not hoppy. That's that's definitely true. Um, yeah, Elvin, what are you drinking? Well, um, I'm in the same ca- similar camp actually. I'm drinking a very fine glass of co-op semi-skimmed milk. Um, and there's a, a deliberate reason for it. One is well, one I 
I thought it might not be sensible for me to drink alcohol. I don't drink very much. And if I drank a little bit, I might start saying silly things that might not be appropriate. So I thought I'll, I'll lay off alcohol anyway. But um, That's I, why we do it, to be honest. <laughs> well, exactly, <with> you. yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you come across this um, Masterclass series? Um, it's been out for a while now and it's you know the best of the best people on cooking and yes. skateboarding and everything well um, I, I subscribed to it a few months ago it's excellent really 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 good and uh, I was watching one last night very late trying to switch off before bed and um, it was on um, how to do great advertising and I, I kind of got a bit of a background in that and I'm, a, and I'm a bit of a geek for it so they were doing this case study on in America ads for selling milk and it was just really, really interesting. And anyway, long story short, they were they were showing how they had to sell milk, but there was nothing less to say about milk because it's been it's all been said. So you can't you know just talk about the the health benefits of milk anymore or, or anything else. So they said, okay, well, the way that we will sell milk is to sell the absence of milk and its consequences. So they had all of these disaster ads of where when milk was missing, people had a crisis and there are all kinds of things. I, thought, I was remembering that earlier and I thought in honor of that excellent masterclass episode, I'm going to have a glass of milk. That's fantastic. Have you got an Oreo biscuit with it? No, I don't like Oreos. <laughs> That's so where, where, where are you on the skimmed, semi-skimmed, full fat uh, spectrum? Depends what I'm doing. If I'm just drinking milk, it's always semi-skimmed. If it's coffee, it's full fat. If it's tea, it's semi-skimmed. But I would never go near skimmed. No, see, this is a man with a full range of milk in his fridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, look, while we're there, let's just address the the, the elephant in the room here. Um, Cravendale runs ads claiming it's not milk, um, but but it is, isn't it? Really? Come on, let's be honest. Just... I've not seen those. Have I? Have you been living in a cave or something? I'm that not going to do an impression. Oh, okay. It's not milk. It's Cravendale. Uh, oh, oh yeah. I see. It's better yeah. They're saying it's better than milk. Is that what they're exactly. saying? Exactly. Yeah. Maybe right. we should do an entire episode on uh, analysis of milk-based advertising. Well, you can see. So I'm an expert in non-dairy milk. So I in in the cupboard we tend to have almond milk, sweetened almond milk, rice milk, uh, soya milk, and also oat milk. There's another one. Oat milk. Yeah, oat milk. Yeah. And sweetened and sweetened because we don't tend to eat eat. We don't tend to drink milk in, in our house very often. We could just we could talk about anything, couldn't we? We could. <laughs> we literally talk about anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'll just finish off because I've got a um, a beer called uh, it's a Sierra Nevada beer, so American beer, um, hazy little thing IPA. It's all right. It's it's absolutely fine. The only trouble is I put it a bit too far at the back of the fridge, so it's almost frozen. In fact, I'm pretty sure there are ice cubes at the bottom somewhere but but otherwise it's pretty good and it will definitely uh, see me through to the end of this podcast okay so um so we welcomed elvin turner onto the show mostly because he's one of these incredible people that has written a book and not only is it a book but it's a book about innovation and going back to the uh, previous episode when we had uh, hannah tempest on the show we talked a lot about um, how we encourage uh, cross-functional teams to operate within businesses. But I think Elvin's book is a slightly different twist on things. It's a slightly more um, focus on the business, on how they operate around innovation. Do you want to give us a little introduction to the book, Elvin? If you've got an elevator pitch or something like that, what's, how have you promoted it? Yeah, well, well I, I've, I wrote the book because I was often finding myself in situations inside companies where I'd be invited in and the question would be, can you help us figure out how to actually do innovation? Because whenever we try, it just seems to slip through our fingers. It must be some kind of black art. Can you come and demystify it for us? Mm. So I, I would go in and do some work and then inevitably the, the project would end. And I, and I always felt I need to better leave something behind here, a resource that is practical. It's not written in jargon, but it, it gives you a walkthrough of the kind of like the A to Z of innovation so that at any point in the process, you've got something you can turn back to and there's practical tools, things that work. So it was really written by me as something that I wanted to leave behind. And originally I was, I was just going to self-publish it for that reason and kind of just bolt it onto what I do. And then a publishing deal came along. So it kind of took a slightly different course, but it's really, I mean, it's called Be Less Zombie. And the 
the reason for that is that so many of the large companies that I end up working with display zombie-like tendencies in the way that they work because they are struggling to find relevance, they're struggling to stay alive, and they're Mm -hmm. lurching from one meal to the next and not leaving a very healthy trail behind them. So it was um, a a desire to help organizations get better at innovation, but at the same time, try and kind of untangle some of the junk that happens along the way that makes workplaces sometimes not a very nice place to be. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm guessing these are larger en- uh, enterprise kind of companies. Is that the generally the kind of theme? Well, it is. I mean, mo- most most of my work has been with large organisations, but it's been really interesting hearing feedback from readers all over the world. Really saying, I work with one other person, and this stuff makes sense to me. I had someone, <laughs> I had someone from Mexico last week email me from a Catholic priest seminary saying this this is really helping us think differently about the future of how we train priests and thinking oh my goodness wow. like that so I, I to be honest when you when you look at the really really some of the core principles in the book it's really how do people do stuff that's new together and it could be three people it could be thirty thousand people i think a lot of the principles are are universal mm. And I'm just interested because I'm I'm fascinated by people who've written books. Was this your first book, by the way? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. And so how was it? I mean, was it a really arduous process or did it flow? What what kind of happened? Um, well, I started out writing. So my right right back at the beginning of my career, I was a, a speech writer and a, a ghost writer for um, oh, wow. execs. And I did a little bit of political bits and pieces but I I kind of knew how to write but I never really intended to turn it into something that was going to be for making a living or or anything like that anyway I went through my career I I did bits and pieces of writing um never with my name on it um and then uh, when it came to it it was interesting it was kind of a game of two halves I, I ended up having about four months to write it and the first month was utter crap it was awful and I, I had a crisis of confidence after the first month thinking actually I can't do this the publishers give me a deadline I'm not mm. going to do it because this this is just terrible writing and I threw it threw it all away and after I'd got all of that kind of out of my system it started to flow a bit better and, and actually I really enjoyed the writing process I had it was last summer I was doing it and I used to really look forward to getting to my desk and I got into a sort of rhythm that was sort of working for me and um, I was a little bit late handing it in but it was good I, I and it's made me I enjoyed it so much that I definitely want to write another one that's that's awesome and, and how did you involve others or did you not did, was it quite an isolated process because you had limited time or was it more about trying to interact with people who were specialists in their area and gathering more knowledge or did you have already have that knowledge well I I was really drawing on a lot of what I'd already done and I've worked with quite a few people and I, I read all of the time. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my work, people expect me to know, you know, what's hot, what's coming, what are the trends and you know, what are the hot books that I should be reading right now? I'm often finding myself like a curator or, or a navigator in that respect. So I had a lot of raw material. Um, I, I just needed to to get it down. But that said, there were two or three people during the writing process that I I thought, mm, this is a bit dull, this part, or this is a bit thin, this could do with another story. So I contacted a, a few people and, and added in a bit more. But I'd say 95% of it was just me taking years mm. of notes and thoughts and crunching it into the book. In, in terms of the, the book title, "Be Less Zombie," um, what 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 are the kind of symptoms you see with companies that are being zombie? Um, a, a few. So, if we think about it at two levels, there's 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 the corporate level, and it's generally an, a, an overemphasis on today, the status quo, and one of the things that I'll often hear when I go into a company is a, a, a leader will say to me where are all the big ideas? We tell people all the time to innovate and no one comes up with anything original or anything good at all. In fact, there's, there's, there's no innovation going on here. And I say, well, 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 hang on a minute, because I've learned to understand that that's, that's not true usually. And when you dig beneath the surface, there's a ton of innovation going on, but it's all 
incremental it's keeping the wheels turning it's you know it's it's very much focused on just making today a little bit better which you need because you've got to stay in business and you know there's competition and there's a VUCA world and all of that stuff so we're we need that the the challenge is that that stuff just the, the small ideas keeps you moving today but it leaves you vulnerable to big shifts in the industry that inevitably come so ideally you want a portfolio of ideas which is a balance of the you know the small stuff but also you've got a portfolio and a pipeline of bigger ideas that could be game changers in your industry whether that's mm -hmm. what you make or how you do it and that's the frustration is that there really aren't many around the reason is most companies set themselves up just to run today super efficiently and that means lots of certainty lots of known cause and effects all the measures in the company all of the kpis are make today work in an awesome way which as i said you need but try dropping uh, a very kind of emergent idea about something that might be useful in a couple of years time because the technology is not really well baked or tested enough yet into that machine that's running at a thousand miles an hour either it's dead on arrival or we don't know what to do with this thing we'll put it in the stick it on a backlog somewhere and we'll review it in a you know yeah. in three months six months and of course it dies a slow and painful death somewhere so some of it is a huge emphasis on running today efficiently doesn't give us the breathing space and the context in which more uncertain ideas most of which are going to fail anyway are not given the space to to show up so at a corporate level that's that's a big factor but also as a, at a personal level I, I, I meet people with these symptoms all of the time one of the first things i put in the book was some research that i found that said in america now one in five people die because they go to work which sounds ridiculous no no sorry not one in five that's wrong scrap that um, the fifth largest cause of death in America is going to work. And what they mean by that is right. um, the stress, the anxiety and the secondary diseases that are created by that um, are a huge killer. So you look at the the system that we created inside companies where we're moving so fast, we haven't got time to think about tomorrow. And we're moving so fast, we're creating stressful situations in which people can't do their best work. And by the way, we're shortening their lifespans. It, yeah. it kind of conjures up a fairly zombie, zombie, I don't know what the word is, zombarific kind of um, <laughs> scenario, I think. I like the, so, so in the book, there's there's uh, there's a comment or, or a line in there that, 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 that kind of struck home with me a bit. And it, it, I think it was something like you're, you're under constant attack from the future. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I can kind of see how in my experience of working life in medium and large large enterprises a lot of the focus particularly on in businesses that are very operationally focused so i think you know i'm from a, from a digital background and i've worked in companies that aren't pure play digital but they have a real operational side whether it's a hotel chain or whether it's a travel company or whatever it is um you are under constant attack from the future, but a lot of those businesses see growth as, you know, increasing capacity or increasing operational efficiency rather than thinking mm. about innovation as something that can, you know, stem that attack from the future. So, so I, I just, how, how do you kind of start shifting that mindset from, from getting away from growth from extra capacity towards growth from innovation? Well, I think that the key really is thinking about what we measure um, and there's uh, somewhere in the book I talk about we are what we measure and in the short term we're measuring short-term um, outcomes and therefore we get quick known cause and effect ideas uh, someone said to me once we only suggest ideas that we know that are going to make it through the system i.e we'll suggest ideas that well we won't suggest ideas that are going to be so painful it's not going to be worth our while and they won't make it anyway so how how do we shift that well um, I really like what the um the company 3m does and they they've recognized that if we're going to stay in business and we're going to continue to be able to charge premium rates for our products which is how they how they make their money that's their business model we we need to accept the fact that we're going to need a broad portfolio of ideas some of which are going to be very small and incremental but we need to somehow make bigger scarier ideas that are probably going to fail show up Otherwise, we're not going to have the pipeline that we need for the future. So what they do 
is they set a corporate measure, which is 30% of their revenues, it, it changes, but more or less 30% of their revenues need to come from products that didn't exist four years ago. Now, if you think that through, that demands more than just incremental ideas. It kind of sets a chain reaction off in place where if we don't have bigger order ideas that, that are going to deliver higher levels of value, then we're not going to hit that target. And people are on the line for delivering that target. So it kind of forces this um, inevitability that the context for bigger ideas needs to show up. So um, well, what does that mean? Often it's about let's think about the outcome we need, bigger, scarier ideas. Let's think about the environment that they're going to need to show up in. Okay, so we're going to need more tolerance for failure, different types of resource, different types of people, a different context altogether, rather than trying to cram it into the status quo and hope that it shows up. And all that really does is give, give everybody an evening job and people are trying to do innovation when the kids are in bed. And it's, it's just not a recipe for success that's very smart. And we wouldn't treat any other part of the business like that. So why would we think that innovation is any different? So for me, the starting point is, uh, at least the ideal starting point is thinking about what do we measure today and what are the consequences on behavior? And are those supporting the those metrics supporting the behaviors that we want to show up? If they're not, we need to kind of work back from the future and think what would need to be true in order for us to be able to create that broad portfolio of ideas. Otherwise, we're stuck with the status quo that we've got now. Mm. You've, you've touched on a, a few things which um, I find really interesting. And we talked about it with Hannah in the last episode, um, a little bit about companies who might go off and create an innovation team separately from the business as usual. Uh, kind of uh, operation of that business and of course that can create a real tension in a business mm. um, so so I think and, I, and I've been on both sides of this you can be uh, iteratively roots upwards trying to bring innovation iteratively to whatever that product is or, or trying to extend that product or think about new products and the opposite is you are hived off in a separate innovation team and then you have the battles of trying to get that idea implemented into the business as usual teams. So there's this kind of uh, tension between this kind of bottom-up process of innovation and this top-down process of innova innovation. I wondered if you've observed any of this and are any of those more effective or can we blend them in some way? What, what do you see as being the right way of delivering innovation? Well, I don't know if there is a right way. I think there are different models that, that you can make work. And, you know, you look at, look at the great innovators out there of our time, they all have a slightly different model. But what usually is um, a common denominator amongst the, the great innovators is they're being deliberate about it. And, you know, I'll, I'll often talk about innovation is often something that people have a fling with they kind of flirt with it they like the idea of it we'll run a campaign and it's 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 cool to do innovation every now and again you know and that doesn't really work because innovation is always an argument it it demands something better than today and that is a change journey and it puts people on edge because it means someone's got something to lose and the stakes are always too high so the the, the key is being deliberate about the outcomes that we need and what we believe are going to be the best ways to resource that. And for some, they do hive it off out into a, a different department. You know, Apple famously did that with the iPod. Um, people weren't allowed to talk to people in the iPod session, uh, you know, area. The guy who ran iPod was told, you, need, you, you know, your job title is crap deflector. You are the one who defends <laughs> this team from the rest of the organization because they won't understand it and they'll try and kill it. And when the time is right, we'll start to blend it into the organization. And I, so I think the key is being deliberate around, I mean, it's interesting you saying about trying to take new, new ideas and, and bring them into the status quo and, and business operations. People can sometimes look at that and think, well, that's a car crash because one one group of people is looking one way with one set of motivations. The other group of people is looking at another way and potentially it could go wrong. Okay, that could go wrong. So how can we solve that? What would need to be true for it to work? And sometimes we mm -hmm. give up too easily because it went wrong once. Well, the great innovators realize, 
hang on, we're human beings. We probably won't get this right first time. Let's treat it as an experiment and we'll learn fast, we'll iterate and we'll get to a point where yeah. it does actually work and handovers happen really well. So some of it for me is it's less about a prescriptive model. It's more about what's going to work for your culture? What's going to work for the way that you are currently set up and organized? And let's also not hold ourselves hostage to one model forever. It might be that we mix and match. And so I, I tend not to be too um, concerned about a model. My bigger concern is be deliberate. Don't don't date innovation. Mm. I, I, and to extend on that point, I think um, in my experiences, a lot of businesses tend to be very good at the kind of convergent, the critical thought, because that's how roles are set up. They are set mm. up to be very good at operating in the current construct but less open to divergent creative thought. Is that, is that your feeling as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. It does depend on context. So I think if everyone's in a brainstorm, more or less people can open up a bit. If you're told to be more more divergent, that you know, that's helpful. I think when you, but when every year there are these surveys uh, amongst CEOs, you know, what's the most important thing in your business in the next 12 months? And usually creativity or innovation is in there somewhere. And for a few years, it's been creativity and people talking about the value of curiosity and you know, trying to develop that in people. I think the, um, for me, that it's a blend of two things. One is actually giving people really good tools so that when they're in a room, they can come up with good ideas and you overcome a lot of the people issues. You know, you've got always got the loud mouths who, sh you know, who shout the loudest and you've got the geniuses in the corner that say nothing. And so all these kind of human dynamics, some of them can be solved with, with good tools and good processes and good facilitation. And, and that's a choice. Again, it's all out there. People are not necessarily prioritizing the pursuit of that. But for, for me, there's, there's a more sort of sophisticated view on this, which I, I would like to see more companies adopt. And it's just being real about the fact that we're human beings and human beings are going to be more creative and able to do more divergent thinking when they're in a particular state. And that is not four o'clock on, on a Friday afternoon when it's end of quarter and IT's just gone down and you know there is stress because we know from psychology and biology and all sorts of other fields that under stress and under certain circumstances, we are almost incapable of thinking of anything other than what you know what our what's currently in our brain. And you know, we talk about thinking outside the box. Sometimes we can't even see the box. We're so stressed, and you know, so there's there is a more enlightened approach that I think that if CEOs really want to see creativity to unlock what's needed, there's two things that need to come together. One is we need to be more human in our work practices, particularly around creativity. And again, be deliberate about, okay, we're going to have a creative session in a, in, in a month. Let's figure out what would need to be true for us all to show up in the best possible state to make that a really good use of time. What are we not going to do in the two or three days before that? And let's take control over the things that we can control and work up to it. Let's start to plant questions in people's minds to get them thinking in advance, because we know that ideas brew over time. They don't necessarily magic up in the workshop. So it's 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 taking a lot of the stuff that we already know and actually turning it into action rather than quick brainstorm in half an hour, grab your post-it notes, run in, uh, you know, same old ideas come out again, same old people shout, same old idea leaves the um, leaves the room. And then we all know back to my desk, oh, a fire's landed since we were out and no one's got time to do it anyway. It's uh, let, Let's get deliberate about putting the things in place that allow human beings to actually come up with good ideas. And then when you've got the ideas, you've got space, capacity, um, sponsorships to actually turn them into action. Uh, can I get off my soapbox now? <laughs> no, that was great. I, I, I think um, one of the things I was thinking about was um, the, the constructs of businesses. Um, if, if you think about if you work in a business and you are being asked to be more divergent, more creative, the the whole kind of process and framework of business is all around quarterly reviews it's all around results and kpis and of course when you're being divergent when you're being creative and experimenting and testing things and measuring things there's going to be a lot of failure do you think companies need to be a little bit better about getting used to failure i do and i i think failure 
is probably one of the the word failure is one of the issues that we need to get past as well because what what we're really so okay for me there's two types of failure there's failure through incompetence we did bad work it was sloppy we, we, do better next time and we we know you know that can be through bad training or, or all sorts of reasons we failed because we didn't do a good job when we're talking about innovation it's more that we failed because something unanticipated happened we had an idea it was loaded with assumptions and we thought we'd captured them all and we're going to go off and run some tests but when we went to stage one or stage two and we put it out there and something unexpected happened with a customer or someone internally the whole thing failed well did it fail or was there an unanticipated event that came that we have now learned about that we wouldn't do again and if you look at organizations like google x in their moonshots you know they expect 99 percent of their ideas to fail and they know that, and so they're real about it. And they don't back away from big ideas. They lean into the, that state and say, well, okay, what would need to be true for people to embrace stepping into failure, let's call it, um, and make that the path of least resistance rather than running away from potential failure? So they are masters at running fast, cheap experiments to prove that their ideas are, in fact, wrong rather than we've got to prove that it's right, which is usually the way that we work inside companies. And with so, that mindset, sorry, go on. No, I'm, just, I'm going to just jump in there and, and play devil's advocate a little bit, because I think a few of the examples you've, you've kind of said um, sort of imply that a company has enough money to do all of this stuff. And, you know, I know that's not strictly true, but I know a lot of, um, a lot of companies kind of, reasoning is you know we optimize to be efficient because we haven't got any money um, we can't possibly afford to do innovation we can't afford to have think ideas that fail um, and that's that's the anti-pattern of innovation right but but how do you how do you flip that on its head well it's usually not true there's usually actually plenty of money floating about it's it, i i often walk into organizations with no innovation budget and then find there is a stack of money somewhere <laughs> that can be found and applied to things. So I never believe there's no money. That's very rarely the case. If there is an emergency, money can be found. Um, so for me, again, it comes down to prioritization and being deliberate. I think it's also a bit of a myth to say that this way of working is 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 expensive. And people people often say to me, oh, don't talk about Google. We can't be like Google because they're loaded and you know we couldn't afford to be like them. It's really not true. If you go into Google, they are super frugal and their philosophy is very much like many other organizations is you spend no money on testing this hypothesis. You spend as little as possible. It's not how can we spend 50K developing a prototype? It's how can we spend 50 quid? It's learn, not build. And that is actually a really efficient way to work and is probably more efficient than a lot of the ways of working that go on inside organizations. And I, what mm. I found is that when, when you start to introduce the ideas around like lean startup and identifying minimum viable products to test propositions, usually execs haven't come across this stuff before. And it's a real light bulb for them because they say, well, hang on a minute. So what you're saying is don't ask people to bring me ideas, ask them to bring me an experiment that they've run two or three times, having spent hardly any money, but you're going to bring me data with which I can make a more informed decision than I've ever been able to before about an idea that someone's brought me. Think, yeah, exactly. That's it. So some of it is training people to think, you know, dream big, start small. What is the smallest possible experiment you could run? Suddenly, that makes the risk of innovation and the price of innovation really low. So I, I, I kind of have to always push back against that. Of course, there are types of innovation in R&D that are always going to be expensive. But I would, I would say in many, many cases, the price of innovation can be very low when you're particularly, and the context I'm talking about here, is there are the bold ideas that we're saying we want. Usually it feels too scary to take the first step experimentation is taking the first step if not for free for hardly any cost to save us money that we might spend foolishly otherwise yeah so i guess it's about what you're saying is it's about convincing 
uh, a company, a business, a senior manager that it's better to spend money running 50 tiny experiments than sinking it all into one thing that might work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So to get to get to that place, uh, there's something I read in the book that really, really struck home with me again. I said I said at the start, um, I played in a band, so I'm a musician, and um, the the thing that, that is a theme that appears a couple of times in the book about a rehearsal space versus performance space. So I, I completely get that as a musician. I'd never really considered it in in, in the workplace, but you know when when I'm with the band and rehearsing. Um, I, you know, the, the the next thought on from that is about psychological safety of a rehearsal space. So it, it, it's somewhere mm. you can you can make mistakes. You can you can play your instrument too loud. You can play it out of tune, and then you learn actually right. This piece of music requires me to do something slightly differently to get it right. But then everyone has a group a collective understanding in the band itself. When you're on stage and when you're performing, that's when you're you're on your game. And all that all that um, work you put in in a rehearsal space when you're performing that's where it really counts. So it's something as well that Hannah touched on in the last episode. I think to get that position of psychological safety that you get in a rehearsal space, it requires trust amongst the bands that you can do something you want and nobody's going to laugh at you and kick you out for, for making a mistake. And there's, there's a shared understanding that you try it again and you try it again, you try again until you get it right. So is is there kind of a bit of a trust issue in businesses today? I mean, I've worked in a number of different places and I get a feeling that sometimes you are in more of a performance environment most of the time compared to a, a rehearsal environment. So what's your view on that? Do you think there is there are trust issues in, in businesses? I think trust is probably the biggest opportunity for most companies to have a, a performance explosion in a good way. I, th- I think it's massively underrated. I think it's seen as something that's just too hard to deal with. And yet there's been so much research done to show that when trust increases, profit increases, speed increases, agility increases, everything rises when people trust one another more. And I think it's particularly true. I think you're dead right in in the, in the context of innovation where you know, day to day, you can be working with a team. We all know broadly what one another's strengths are, what we're most likely to do under certain circumstances, because we're, this is what we're doing 99% of the time. Now we bring in some uncertainty. We're going to trust people to go away and do something they've never done before. And if it backfires, we might all capture some of the flack. Suddenly, the, the dimensions, the dynamics in the team, we're slightly more on edge because we've all got something to lose, potentially. There's something more at stake. And I think the the challenge and the opportunity really is, again, being deliberate. Okay, let's work back from the ideal performance state. What would need to be true for us to feel actually really okay about something going wrong or, or, or failing? How do we need to work to do that? And my understanding is that this is how Spotify works. At the beginning of a project, the team or the squad, as they're called, is given... The, the mandate to design the performance state that they're going to need as a team in order to achieve their objective over the next three, six months or whatever it is. And part of the discussion is around frameworks, uh, agreeing deadlines, agreeing schedules of work and how we're going to do stuff. But some of it also is around, well, how do we need to show up for one another? Because when we get to day 30 at that part of the sprint and da 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 da, that's likely to happen. So how are we going to feel? And what can we do to prepare for that? And how can we minimize and mitigate against that? And again, when you think about it in those terms, it makes absolute sense. But we're usually in such a rush and we don't give enough thought, deliberate thought to the humanity of business at speed with complexity going on. It's kind of no wonder now and again, we we have car crashes and therefore become very defensive and don't want to be vulnerable in, in a context that demands vulnerability because we're going to fail and you know creativity demands vulnerability i'm going to put something out there that in in some teams i'll probably get laughed out of the room but in this team i know you'll you'll cut me some slack and you'll say no 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 there's something in that let's just play with it a little bit more so i think there's something in trust which is so much to unpack that we don't make time for and i just feel this there's, there's such an opportunity there for for any team actually do, do you think part of this is the structure of the employees in an organization whether you go down the flat structure or whether you go down a hierarchical model does that play into this tr- these trust matters i think it can i mean I, I think still the jury's out on is there an ideal structure you know there's all this, this holacracy and all sorts of other experiments that are being run and 
some do well, some do less well. Um, I I don't know, being really honest, what what the what the real answer is. But I what I do know is that we are too quick. I like to talk about logic, magic, and emotion as this yeah. sort of triangle of 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 doing work, and we're we're too quick to prioritize logic in everything and process and strip out the emotion of business, the humanity of business and what could go wrong and, and actually trying to build, to, you know, this is human beings trying to get work done. And we don't really think so much about the human being side of things. We think about the work. And if we want to create an environment where people are comfortable and fluid in change and doing different things that the future needs us to do, kind of need to get over that a little bit. And, um, and I think because most leaders haven't necessarily got much experience in that it feels uncomfortable and it's a journey that they're going to have to go on as well and so it gets kind of booted into the long grass and uh, for someone else mm. maybe to figure out or not I, th- I think in in my experience in, in in a lot of big enterprise companies you get siloed functional teams and often they have different objectives they don't always um, align with each other in terms of the goals for that business so when the business is trying to meet a particular aim, and that could be measurable and very, very clear, it can be very difficult because there are slightly different ways of thinking about that objective uh, in terms of the technical or the design aspect or the, uh, the QA operation, the sales teams, customer services, all of those operational aspects don't always seem to match up very easily. And I often wonder whether uh, companies need uh, those strong coach characters to lead uh, those roles, uh, whether that's a product owner or whether that's a, a an agile coach, those seem to be the really sought after skills to kind of bring everyone together. Is is that your kind of your experience as well? Yeah, I think I think there's definitely a case for that. I think that there is a, a need for more of those skills around. But I, I think the real elephant in the room with this one is strategy and many organizations that i meet don't actually have a strategy they have a plan for 12 months which isn't really talking at all about how we're going to be different and why would someone choose us and the why the what and the how of how we go to market is is something that's differentiated it's it's much more about a plan and you know probably we all know that you know come year end the every department is off doing their own annual plan and they're not really talking to each other very much and and so you do get this lack of alignment that does lead to to the problems and i think again we have to get real about this and think very differently about how we do strategy how we do it collaboratively and and how we we break out of the silos and i i think you know i'm not saying that, that spotify has necessarily got got everything right but i do like the way that the they work in squads and in the other i can't remember what they call the other um parts of their organization but it's all cross-functional and you you oh, they have chapters of you know you have a marketing chapter and you have a finance chapter but then they are spread out across the organization which means there is so much more potential for not only expertise to be spread around, but understanding of objectives across the organization because there's a deliberate focus on it. I mean, the number of organizations I go into, I I run quite a lot of leadership development programs for all all sorts of levels, but quite often it's emerging talent, people who are going to be in the hot seat in five years' time. And one of the most frequent things they say to me, you know, I'll ask them a question about how something works in the company and they say, well, I don't know. Anyone, anyone here know? And, and the lack of communication about strategy, where we're going, why we're doing it, who's doing what, no one has a clue what's going on. I'm thinking, really? <laughs> and, it, and yeah, really. And, and again, communication is something that is really paid lip service to, I think, in many organizations. Mm-hmm. So again, knowledge sharing, knowledge management, how are you going to do that? It's the, it's the, the lifeblood of innovation often. So some of this stuff is it's the stuff that feels like it's secondary, but it's really not. Um, in, in, in a couple of companies I've worked in, there's been a focus on, well, what am I going to get at the end of this? Um, and we talked a lot about this kind of learning culture, that we are trying things, learning from it, measuring it. And actually, that could dramatically change the strategy that you originally started with. Um, how do you encourage companies to to be that kind of learning culture and, and take that feedback loop, which may come from, you know, it may be set by 
a senior director. But then one of the individual teams, one of the individual contributors on one of the teams may say, hey, this doesn't work. I've measured it. It doesn't work. How does that, that kind of loop work? It doesn't work in many places, I think. And I think that that's one of the, the difficulties with innovation. I, I think there's, there's something that I found that's interesting that seems to cut through all of this and, and does it kind of creates a bit of a reality check around how are we pursuing innovation? Tell me if I'm not answering your question, because I think I think I know what you mean, but I'm, I'm, I'll put this out there and see where it goes. So um, one of the, the challenges that companies have, I think, is they cling to what kills them. And what I mean by that is they've got something that works today and we're going to optimize this into an inch of its life. And in the back of my mind, we're thinking this will go on forever in some form. And then five years later, you know, someone someone does an Uber or an Airbnb and the whole industry is is disrupted. And we kind of think that's never going to happen to us. And and we're, we're kidding ourselves. So this there's this idea, I don't know, uh, listeners may have come across this methodology called jobs to be done, mm. which is really looking at what are the things that customers want that they've actually wanted for a long time and they will probably continue to want into the future. In a particular context, they're trying to get something done and that thing doesn't really move very much. If I think about, I think in the book, I give the example of I want to have access to and I want to manage my music. I've been wanting to do that for 50 years and I'll still want to do that in 50 years time. That's not moving very much. The technology that I'll use to help me make that progress will change many times as as it has. And at each shift, I'll make better progress because the technology has moved. So if you think about from tape to CD, something shifted from CD to streaming. Suddenly it's so much easier than it was 50 years ago. So the progress that I've been able to make is much better. It's the technology that's shifted. Our tendency inside organizations is to be very product centric. How can we sell more X rather than companies like Netflix, for example, is how can we make a better user? So Netflix talks about how can we help um, customers find the best movies? They're not saying, how can we sell more streaming? They're not saying 15 years ago, how can we sell more DVDs? They know that it's going to change and they're real about that. What they're looking at is today, this is the best way for, for customers to find movies and manage the best movies in five years time in 10 years time someone's going to come up with a better idea for doing this it might as well be us so let's not get too enamored with how we do it today of course let's take it seriously and let's optimize it but let's make sure we're saving some capacity so that we can pull some of tomorrow into today and make sure that when tomorrow shows up we've got something where either we're leading the next wave or we're, we're very close behind the, the company that's doing that. When you start to think in that, those terms of progress, suddenly you think, actually, that should be at the heart of strategy. Where yeah. our customers are going in the future is probably more predictable than we think. We just need to make some choices about being more agnostic about how we help them, and it doesn't have to look like this square box that we've got today. So that, for me, when you start to drop that light bulb into an organization and that way of thinking, it can suddenly make executives sit up and think, actually, yes, innovation is is perhaps <laughs> less optional than we thought. How do we prioritize this? And actually, it makes it safer because if you know broadly where progress is heading and what people want, you can start to make safer bets around technology that's going to help them make better progress in the dimensions that they want. I think one of the things I, I really enjoyed about the book um, is is when you did sort of cover jobs to be done theory, um, and you gave a good a good balance view of the Elwick versus Clement discussion on that. And I I've started work at places where there's been, um, and I, I say this in a very positive way. There's been a sort of a, a, a reading list of of books that. Um, I should ideally go through, and that includes, you know, the, the When Coffee and Carol Compete and Inspired by Marty Kagan. Um, and, I yeah, I've really kind of read about in detail the, the jobs to be done theory, um, but I found your, your book gave a good sort of overview of it and then sort of sparked my interest and to the point where I kind of I'd wish I'd read yours first and then being more aware of the two different sort of schools of thought on it before going into the detail. Um, but but one of the things that I've, I've found, particularly about jobs to be done, as we've mentioned it now, is I've really struggled to communicate it 
when I've tried to use it um, with other people, um, so I, I've, over the last few months, I, I've not been working full time and I've, I've kind of worked doing a little bit of freelance. When I've, when I've tried to talk about it and help people try and understand it, it it's quite hard to communicate. So have you have you seen cases where jobs to be done theory has been executed in a really successful way? And, and what are the secrets about sort of getting that getting that buy-in to, to go down a road like that? I have, but it's, I'll be honest, it's, it's few and far between. And I, mm. I, I still think it's an idea that is not exactly proving itself, but it's a, a lot of these, these ideas, they've, they've found their way through academia and have been taught in business schools. And there are case studies galore. Actually, there aren't that many case studies out there still talking about how people do this. I can I can speak about a couple of examples where I have seen it done well, and I'm going to use the word again. They were very deliberate about it, and what they did was they um, they looked at the key customers that they were working with, the customer sectors. They did a really good job at mapping out the context in which customers use their pro- use their products and services, trying to dig deeper and see well actually what progress are they trying to make the why of they using that product and finding all kinds of th- potential new opportunities to help customers make cheaper better faster progress that were with their products and maybe without their products um, so that was good so it was the mapping process and helping people see well these are the real customer insights that should inform the questions that should spark our brainstorms so we're aligning, again, customer insight down to question formation, problem statements, down into idea generation. And then that, that feeds the portfolio so that we have got a greater chance of creating ideas that customers actually want. So there's that front end. But the crucial bit for me was later down the chain. It was making sure that along the product pipeline, the get, you know gateways, gate one, gate two, gate three, and, until you actually sign off the thing and it's scaling, at each gate you're asking the question again, okay, so show me um, what job is this actually doing? Now, in a couple of organizations, I've really recommend we drop drop the language of jobs to be done because I don't think it's very helpful, particularly in the UK, because like, what do you mean I'm hiring a product to do a job for me? What? You know, and and it just didn't really work, which is why I just talk about progress, uh, which is actually Alan Clement who wrote um, Coffee and Kale. It's the language that he uses. Um, what progress am I trying to make? What kinds of progress? And at the gate stage, the stage gates, you're asking the question, demonstrate to me that this is underserved, very important progress that we're helping a customers um, make um, before we say yes to this. And then um, it gets fed into marketing as well. So there's a very clear embedding of the process from beginning to end, not just something that's bolted onto the front, um, but it's measured all the way through. And it's, I think it's only when you do that that it really shows up because it shows we mean business. This isn't something that's going to disappear in six months' time. This isn't the latest marketing fad. This is actually trying to figure out the future of our business by more deeply understanding our customers and using that as the basis of our innovation. So I, that said, that hasn't happened very often. I've had the same experience as you and many times I've gone in and I've talked about it and I'm met with blank faces and, mm. and told, well, this is just market research with a different name, isn't it? And you go around a loop and you don't get very far. Or, or sometimes organizations have their own very well embedded process that is kind of good enough. And you think, well, is it worth uprooting this whole process to, for this new thing that looks like it might only give us a 5% improvement, which it might, you know, so it's horses for courses, but I'm, I'm a big believer in the principles showing up somewhere just to de-risk innovation, if nothing mm. else. I think one, one of the other things I saw in the book, which was probably a slightly tongue in cheek quote, so I mean, I'd love to get Sam's opinion on this. Um, there, there's something I read about saying, oh, I'm, I'm not sure about getting engineers in front of customers because they've got no <laughs> idea how to communicate. Um, so uh, I've, I've always been a big believer in anyone working in a business on a product, just getting them in front of customers and hearing what customers experience is, is always going to be valuable. Um, so I, I know, Sam, do, do you generally feel that when, you know, when you're working on a product from a, from a technical slash engineering point of view, do you get enough view of the the end customers and the whole sort of progress to try and help people make? Um, or do you wish there was more of that? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Keith. Um, 
No. And look, here's the thing that really, really winds me up more than anything in the world. People, right, forget the label of engineers or product or UX or whatever you want. People become good at the things that they do. And so to say something like, well, don't put engineers in front of um, in front of people because they're not good at communicating. How will they ever become good at communicating? And um, let's not get into the definition of what, what good at communicating means because that is different for different people. But I am a massive fan of having everyone involved in, in solving a problem involved at as many stages of solving that problem as possible. Uh, and it's something that rarely happens. Um, and actually, when I try and apply it, there's a mix as well. There's a mix. Some people would prefer not to be involved in that. And they say, oh, no, you go away and just figure out the problem and just, just give me the thing that you need to do. And that's always a challenge. But actually, more often than not, people who are involved in solving a problem want to really understand what they're solving. They want to be involved from the start. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's my there's my two pence uh, worth. I think you've touched on something really important. I often think that product development is about purpose, um, that not just the, the C-suite, but also the, 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 the squads or the cross-functional teams, whatever you call them, they have a shared vision of what that purpose is. And I think that is, I think, one of the hardest things to achieve, to create that alignment where you both understand what you're going for and what you, how you're going to measure it. I mean, I hate to pull this out of the bag, but it's the Agile Manifesto, right? It's people over process. Talk to people. Get people involved. Um, sure, you need to have a bit of a process to guide thinking, but don't exclude people because they belong to a, a certain type of of group and then and in, in your mind that group only comes later on in the problem-solving stage. Um, yeah, it winds me up. You may have noticed it's hit a bit of a nerve. <laughs> I mean, there is. A, I guess there is some. Sometimes there's log, uh, logistical issues. You know when teams are really spread and resources are really spread, and say there's a you know usability sessions or you've got focus groups going on. You're trying to get everyone involved with that, but you just can't because there's so many dependencies within the business. And I, I think that's part of the issue, isn't it? That that kind of how do you deconstruct that resource yeah. way of working? But then I'd I'd go back to the point that. Elvin quite rightly made earlier, which is if you actually look at it, I would wager that there's a lot of people who are too busy to be involved, busily investing money in a, in a huge thing that someone's just decided is a good idea, rather than running those 50 small experiments to find out what, you know, what, a, what the best approach is. And it's really funny because you hear a lot, especially in kind of sea level roles, you hear a lot of people talking about data-driven decisions. Guys, we're going we're to make this, these decisions based on data. I see it happen very little. Um, a lot of companies are, you know, are saying the right things, but really struggling to find the way to do it, which is why whenever books like this come out, I'm kind of all over it to try and, yeah, maybe this is the one. This is the one that'll give me that magic tool that'll help people understand, uh, you know, what what I'm trying to say. Anyway, I'm rambling. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, yeah, I must admit, from what we, I haven't read the book yet, Elvin, but I, from what you said and all the different methodologies you covered, it sounds like a really great primer uh, for lots of different ways of thinking around innovation. So, yeah, I'll definitely. That's that's a good word, actually, because I, I've said right at the start, this isn't trying to be a deep dive on innovation. This is for teams and companies that just want to get started. So I talk about turn it on, turn it up. Just this is to help you get it turned on because so many companies really struggle with just getting something moving and then you can calibrate it and make it more sophisticated. So I think Primer is a good describer, actually. And I guess I, I think we should probably wrap up now. We're kind of coming to the hour, but um, I want to leave the final thought with you, Elvin, um, given it's your book and uh, really, we, we really generate a lot of discussion around some of the concepts you've been talking about. What If there's one thing you could ask all businesses to do in terms of innovation, what would that one thing be? I think I'm going to be a broken record and it's be deliberate. It's that choice. It's thinking about who do we need to become? What does the future need us to become? And what decisions does tomorrow need us to make today? And therefore, 
what needs to be true so that 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 performance state can show up because unless we're deliberate that innovation argument that i talked about earlier it's it's completely one-sided and there's a picture in the in the book i should mention actually there's a uh, I, I did the book with an illustrator richard johnson is just a amazingly mm. talented guy he worked in hollywood and all sorts of things and he drew this this picture of a, a great big sumo wrestler who is status quo and this tiny skinny little guy trying to fight him called innovation and and that's the reality and it, it will always be like that it's an unfair fight unless we're deliberate about the kind of future that we need and the context in which that future is most likely to show up so my my parting word would be be deliberate and, and where does that deliberate deliberate nature come from it comes from the top is that kind of where you're coming from I, in an ideal world it does and um you know very quickly there's two thoughts for me on this in an ideal world you start at the top it's strategic and everything is mobilized to help this happen reality is in most places you can't get the attention of the leaders to do this so mm-hmm. i always recommend to any team it's just learn um lean startup techniques and just start running experiments and watch what happens. You get people leaning over your, well, you used to in the office, leaning over and looking at, what are you doing over there then? Uh, and showing them the progress you're making without spending any money, without taking any risks. It is like moths to a flame. And when executives start to see it, suddenly they're thinking, hang on a minute, we should be doing this at scale. So that's more of a guerrilla style, if you like. Um, but I de- in, you know, in reality, it's both. But um, in an ideal world, you start at the top. So, Graham, am I allowed one more question? Go, go for it, yeah. Um, just just thinking then about talking about offices and that that dim and distant memory of being in one. Uh, Sam, as we were talking a few days ago about um, the subject of innovation and COVID, and I think you had an interesting question about, about that and some thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen a drop in innovation. Um, and I'm kind of trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, you know, obviously people have got a lot on their mind, right? And that's totally understandable. It's, it's a global pandemic. Lots of terrible things have been happening. But I'm, I'm, I'm pondering the question, is it more difficult to innovate as a team uh, when you're working remotely? Is it easier in the office? I don't know. Interested in your thoughts on that. Um. Well, I was an innovation coach at Cisco for a while, and they were already the most remote company I've ever come across. You can basically work wherever you want in the world. As long as there's an internet connection and a laptop, they're good. And I I, I knew teams that had never, ever met. It was all done online. So it is possible. I wouldn't say it was always optimal. Um, because you lose you lose a lot um, when you're trying to do everything remotely, and you've got time zones and stuff like that to contend with. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think still it's too early to tell because I think we've been in knee jerk reaction mode. People are just trying to figure out how to do this remote working thing and share resources in the way they need to, and all sorts of other things. I think it will pan out. But again, if you could whack me around the head, you probably would by now, but I'm going to say again, be deliberate. Okay, here's an opportunity to run some experiments. If we're going to be in this mixed economy of some in the office, some out of the office, and we still need to deliver this, what's going to need to be true in order for us to do it well? Let's run some experiments and come up with scenarios. When this, this is how we'll do it. If this, this is how it's going to work. And expect to go on a learning journey rather than either sat paralyzed, sit paralyzed, or make it up as you go along every time and and have lots of car crashes. So again, it's let's make some deliberate choices about the performance state that we're going to need by, you know, running some tests now is is what I'd I'd say anyway. Mm, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think the more nimble companies, I I look at some of the restaurants in my local area and how they've innovated very, very quickly Mm. to adapt to the consequences. And admittedly, they are smaller companies, but they've got a lot less funds often. Yeah. But they are doing it. They are adapting and they are doing things. So, And I, I wonder whether some of the big companies are still in a bit of shock. They're still in that moment where they haven't quite thought about how do we adapt to this. Um, and maybe second thing, second thought that maybe this is going to come to an end at some point and it will go back to the, the old normal. Um, but I think it's very soon people are going to start, big companies are going to start thinking very seriously about how they are deliberate to your point, Elvin. I think... Um, but I I'm not quite sure they're, they're, they're all there yet. 
No, I mean, it's tough. Who'd be a leader right now? I mean, it's the, the complexity inside some of these companies is enormous and trying to understand the consequences of all kinds of different things moving at the same time. I mean, it's really, really hard. So you're right. I'm seeing innovation and training budgets completely slashed all over the place as a reaction to survive. But you know, breathing in for so long, you pass out. You've got to you've got to start breathing again at some point and investing in things. Um, otherwise, tomorrow is not going to show up. Thank you very much, guys, and thank you, Elvin, for joining us on episode five. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been just great. a reminder: um, the book is called "Be Less Zombie" uh, by Elvin Turner, um, and I'm, I'm guessing it's on Amazon. Is it? Is it on all the? Yeah, it's on all the. You can get it anywhere if you Google it. It shows up in in lots of different places. I think having having read the book, there's some links in it as well. To to you've got a website with some um, material on it that to, to help yeah, you there's on lot- that journey free resources there in fact if you go to elvinturner.com there's a free course that i created as response to covid actually that's got some of the content from the book done as a kind of a, a webinar series it's 30 videos and I, i'm going to leave it up a little bit longer but i'll probably take it down at some point because i want to start charging for it <laughs> <laughs> brilliant Okay, guys. So, um, so if you like the discussions you've been hearing today, uh, and we will have many more special guests, uh, such as Elvin, uh, in the future, please do subscribe. We are on Apple, Google, and Spotify, and many others. I'm, I'm still finding out that we're on lots of different platforms, but I didn't realize. So, whatever you're using, do look for us, Three Shaved Heads, and click the subscribe button, and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. <laughs>